Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding way, way, way back, all the way back to episode 80, The Perfect Survivalist Homestead Retreat, and it was first published October 24th, 2008. So, you know, not quite 10 years ago, but 10 years ago in year years, right? Because we're in 2018. So you're getting rewinds this week, except for tomorrow when you have the Stephen Harris Bug Out Trailer Series show. Uh, we'll be doing that for you as, uh, as I get ready to get out of here on Wednesday morning. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of have to do that this week because, well, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I'm simply not even here. And today I'm still getting a lot of things ready for Liberty Forum. So I wanted to take you kind of on a walk through the, the, the distant past of, of TSP this week. And I've got a pretty good series of shows, I think, coming for you. This one, I, 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 you know, I don't know if the other ones that I do this week, I'm going to actually get to listen to them in full. But I actually got to listen to this whole show. Uh, listening to myself, my, my almost 10-year younger self, at the very genesis of TSP. Think, keep in mind that when this show originally aired, the Survival Podcast hadn't made a dollar yet. Okay, we were in our first year. We hadn't got around to that first January or February where I released the MSB. Uh, so I hadn't made a penny on the show yet. It was just starting to build up ahead of steam. Maybe somewhere in the neighborhood between 500 and 1,000 people listening to the show at this time. And uh, But my goal was at that time to get to our homestead in Arkansas, which if you followed the show for a long time, you know we eventually did. And you can hear a lot of things that I wanted changed. Over the years, and now we live in our place in Texas, and we're doing an outdoor kitchen, and, and you know we have our three acres, and we've been more of a somewhat small-scale commercial agricultural concern for a while. We're now moving into a point where we're going really the homestead route, and if we have anything, it's for us. We're not doing anything for sale anymore because of some changes in our lives. Specifically, the big one is Dorothy taking care of our grandkids every day and not having time to really run the business side of things on the ag side. And uh, I think that's beautiful for this show because what you're going to hear even way back then is me explaining repeatedly from different vantages in this show what I want and what you want are probably different and you need to build your retreat, your homestead, whatever it's going to be for you around your life and what you really want. And I think it's awesome that I can actually say, look, what we wanted changed. And I think the key there is we Uh, you'll hear me in this show say things like, you know, right now, this is 10 years ago, and it's still true today, if I were a single guy, I could live in the middle of, you know, Idaho or something like that in, in the, in the, with the wilderness in my backyard and, and only see people once a month, and I could be happy. Um, but I'm not single, and I wouldn't be happy without my wife, and my wife wouldn't be happy there. So, you know, it was, it, that would be too remote. And so we need something where we can have family around and our friends around and things that, you know, to do together and things like that. Uh, because we are different people, and that's good, and that's okay. And I think a lot of people get into wanting this type of a lifestyle, and one of the big friction points is with a partner. And I'm very big on a unified front with your partner, uh, and your kids too, to a degree. I mean, in the end, you have to make decisions. Kids are never going to be happy with every decision, but you have to consider everybody in these decisions. 
and there is a way to give everybody most of what they want, and probably in its impossibility to give everybody everything they want. And happy families, happy lives, happy homesteads, happy farmsteads, happy 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 lifestyles are based on you know realizing okay this is a hundred percent of what I'd like and ninety percent is pretty damn good. How can I get my ninety and get my partner her ninety or his ninety? And I think you'll hear a lot of that in this episode. You'll also you know hear some some interesting things like you'll hear me talk about not wanting to slaughter animals. You'll hear me say things like, I'm a hunter, I've, 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 I've killed many animals, but I've always killed an animal with the potential to get away, and I'm really not about slaughtering animals. And if, if you followed my walk over the years, you know that I kind of like just at some point said, that that's what we need to do to be able to make this work. And it was in some ways a lot easier than I thought. Uh, so I think there's, there's a lesson in that too. Anyway... I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope, really hope you enjoy taking a walk so far into the distant past of TSP. And I hope it, uh, it shows something else too, though. I've heard the show's changed over the years. Um, I think the audio quality is better that you're hearing today than what you're going to hear when we, you know, flip on to me doing it with a Plantronics headset in my car and an MP3 recorder. But I think the overall voice and concept of the show is the same. We may have, uh, all gotten a little older. We have made all, hopefully we have all learned a lot more together. So we have more knowledge to base decisions on. But the core, individual liberty and freedom is what this is all about. And that's where I'm at this week, teaching people individual liberty and freedom. So that's why you're getting rewinds. Hope you enjoy this one. I'll catch you tomorrow with the Stephen Harris Bug Out Trailer Series. And then we'll have three more blasts from the past. Today we're going to talk about instead the uh, the perfect homestead property. This is something I do think I can help you with and give you some pretty good ideas about. We've talked about it before, but I was thinking about it last night and I came up with some thoughts about kind of why I chose the place that I chose to uh, to build my remote retreat at. Uh, and whether you're looking to build a remote retreat. Uh, just for the someday, if it needs to be there. If you're looking to do what I'm doing, which is more of a hybrid, which is where we have kind of a remote retreat now, but it's to be our eventual place of residence. We want to move there and make a lifestyle change. Uh, or if you just want to find it and get on with get on with it and go ahead and go there, uh, we could go through some different things and different aspects of what makes that perfect that place the kind of perfect place for you to go. And let's think about it this way: if we're going to spend our money, if we're going to spend our time, if we're going to spend our resources if we're going to invest in a piece of property like this it should be as close to perfect as we can make it but here's the deal with that my perfect retreat is probably not your perfect retreat if you listen to my show every day and you agree with my take on politics, my take on the economy, my take on the threats that are around us, my approach to storing food, my views on weapons, my views on hunting and fishing, my views on agriculture and permaculture, and you go, everything he says makes sense. Odds are that if we were looking at the same piece of property in the same place at the same time, that we would have different opinions of it. Because when it comes to... Uh, personal things. Very few things hit home and is direct to the individual is where you're going to live, how you're going to live while you're there, what the land and what the home is like, and what you have to do to make it 
the way you want it. In other words, when you move into a property, odds are it's not all perfectly set up already. You're going to have to do certain things. And what things are you comfortable with? What things do you have the budget to do, etc.? The other side of this is where is your family located? Not just your immediate family, but your extended family, your friends, your the network of people that you've known all your life. How far from them do you want to move? You might want to be quite remote, but if, you're, if your life, let's say, is in Portland, Oregon right now, uh, your choice of where to go remote, where you can still go back there, may be far different than my choice when my life is in Dallas, Texas. So the very nature of those two geographic locations make things a lot different. You, no matter what you do, if you're going to stay kind of close to Portland, you're going to have much, uh, much heavier winters, much colder winters than I am here, much longer winters than I am here. You're probably, as long as you stay on the right side of the mountains up there, you're going to have a hell of a lot more rain, though, to support whatever you do than I am. On the other hand, I'm going to have long growing seasons, very short winters down here in the south, even if I move, let's say, to Hot Springs, which is where our location is that we eventually want to kind of move out to, uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Now, the Hot Springs, Arkansas area has a longer winter and a colder winter uh, than we have here in Texas. It's in a different climatic zone. If you've ever, ever, ever ordered plants or something like that from a catalog, you usually see where that plant is going to thrive, and it might be zones like 7 through 9. Uh, I am in zone 8 here. Our place in Arkansas is on the edge of Zone uh, 7, uh, moving north by that climatic zone map. So there is a climate shift, but it's a minor climate shift, and it's definitely a different climate than anything remotely close to Portland, Oregon. So just myself and an individual from Portland, or myself and an individual from, let's say, uh, Acadia, New York, or myself and an individual even from in the south, Atlanta, Georgia, the areas that maybe would be close enough for you to come back to where you are um, are different in a lot of ways. Then your personal views are different, and then unless you're single, and if you're single and you plan on staying that way, or you're single and you plan on finding this place and then looking for somebody after you find it, then a lot of this is maybe off the table for you, what I'm going to say next, but a lot of people that are at a point where they're ready to make this kind of move are married and they have either have kids uh, or they're married and they're going to have children. And now you have to think about more than yourself. For instance, I would be more than happy to live somewhere in the Bitterroot Mountains of Montana and be nowhere near anybody on a homestead on the side of a mountain and provide everything I need for myself with as little interaction with humanity as possible. I could live like that, and I could be pretty daggone happy, except for the fact that I love my wife and I like being with her, and she would be miserable there. So, in that instance, I have to look at something bigger than myself. I also have to look at the fact that my son is now 19 years old. He's in his second year of college. He's getting to a point where he's going to be on his own soon, so he won't go with us. He'll have his own life. He'll probably choose to stay here. Whatever he does will support him, but that's my instinct is that he'll stay here. So, just because he's staying here and I don't have to worry about where we live accommodating him living there, I still have to think about the fact, well, we want to see him. So we're not going to be moving to upstate New York where it's a two-day to three-day car ride to get back down here. And even an air, you know, an airplane, you're talking kind of some real effort to get back here. Five hours for us was kind of like our little geographic window around Dallas. Let's, let's consider what about a five-hour trip is. Let's draw a circle around DFW and 
let's see what the best location for us was. And that's something you may really want to consider. Just sit down with a map of the United States and decide, is it three hours, is it four, is it five, is it six, is it eight? How far are you willing to relocate from where you are? And if you're doing the type of thing that we are, uh, where, it, where we're up there maybe once a month, and we're making improvements and we're getting it ready, and this is a multi-year process for us to do that, uh, and we're maintaining two homes, then you really need to think about how far that really is. For us, five hours was the limit. Five hours is what we did, and I am glad it's not six. That's all I can say. That Another hour added to that trip would really push the usefulness of kind of running this in a two-household uh, two situation. It's something you need to consider. You're, it's not as easy as you would think to just pack up once a month and go spend a long weekend five hours away. If your lifestyle accommodates that, it's a great mode to be in because you can take your time and slowly shape that second home into exactly what you want. The other option is you put a tenant in it and you let them pay the mortgage for a while. We did that as well. The downside of that is, one, they'll never take care of your property the way that you would, and two, you will not be able to make any real improvements toward what you want while they're there. And three, you'll have to collect the rent. Four, you're going to depend on the rent to make the payment, even if you don't need to depend on the rent to make the payment. So you need to set up a situation where that's extra money and it goes like into some kind of savings account. You're not using it to pay the mortgage. If you could only do this with a tenant, don't do it. Don't do a two-household situation if you require a tenant to be able to pay for it. At least if you can't sit on a, a kind of a resource fund that would cover the place for at least a year unoccupied. If you can cover it for a year unoccupied, you're probably going to be able to find the right kind of tenant to put in there and kind of build that fund back up once they're in there. But the, one of the biggest reasons that houses were foreclosed upon uh, with all this subprime mess, and we keep talking about Joe that was an idiot and, and bought the $800,000 house that only had a two $200,000 income, or Tom that was an idiot, he bought the $400,000 house, and his household income you know, was uh, $45,000, and just if you bought a house you can't afford. There's some of that, but a lot of it, in fact the majority of it, from my understanding, is people that were renting houses and the tenant bailed and didn't pay them, and then they couldn't pay for the rent house. That, that was the majority of the homes that actually were lost uh, during this last two-year period. So you can't bet on that. So that's something you really have to consider as you're, uh, as you're making that choice for yourself. So what that tells us is just like the, uh, the way the government's supposed to be run, anyway, that everything in life tends to have a, a, a series of checks and balances uh, within it. And buying a house is the same way, no matter, you know, unless you're filthy rich and then you're probably not listening to this show anyway because you have a team out there figuring out what you want for you and taking care of it, you're never going to be able to buy exactly what you want. And everything that you take as an advantage will have a corresponding disadvantage. Let's look at one of the biggest ones for the survivalist-minded individuals. I want to be remote. Well, the more remote you are, the less local services you have to be able to rely upon. Now, the dark, you know, the hardcore survivalists would say, well, if I'm not relying on them, then if they all go away, I'm not stuck without them and I don't care. In other words, if I could go live off-grid with a solar system and a wind system providing me all my electricity and a well providing me my water, 
And uh, a garden provided me everything I need. And, you know, I didn't go to town, but maybe once every two months I would drive two hours to get to town to stock up and supply. Then if anything happened, I wouldn't care. And there's some truth to that, but there's also, you know, how paranoid do we need to be in this community, right? If you have a good stock and supply of food on the shelves, which you can do in suburbia, let alone out in a retreat, then you should be able to go six months pretty easy, right, if you had to. Well, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something or that you want to do something. Folks, we could make it six months right now. We could, we'd be just fine. I don't want to. You know what I like on Friday nights, not every Friday night, but a lot of Friday nights, my wife and I go up to the restaurant my son works at, and we drink two or three margaritas between the two of us. So it's not a bunch of them. We have some chips and salsa, and then maybe we'll split a plate of food. I like to be able to do that. All right, and I mean, and I, like I said, I can live out remote in Montana, but I wouldn't be able to do that on Friday nights, or I'd have to drive a real long way to do it. And if something tells me finding a margarita that a Texas boy is really going to like in Montana might be kind of difficult, let alone some good Tex-Mex food. So. Everything that you choose has something that balances out the other side. So the key is for you to sit down and say, if I could have everything I wanted, it would be just like this, and make that list, and then start prioritizing, well, which one of these things is most important to me from a quality of life standpoint? Not just, you know, from if the hordes come. I'm telling you, folks, you people that are waiting for, you know, the road warrior or red dawn to happen, I think you're just, you know... An asteroid could hit the Earth tomorrow and destroy everything. All right, they likely don't plan for it. Uh, you plan for a flu pandemic. You plan for an economic, real bad depression. You plan for some kind of shift in the climate, even if it's not, you know, the big climate change. Just, hey, a global drought for a couple of years and what that will do to food supply and food pricing. Uh, these are the things that are realistic, so those are what you plan for. So, you know, leave some lifestyle in your retreat. Um, the next thing I really want you to think about, though, with any property is your water supply. It is one of the things that gives you a lot of independence if you have some water on the property. And it doesn't necessarily need to be drinking water on the property. It's any water on the property. So the first thing you want to look for is, is there a well or can I reliably install a well? And if I have to do it myself, what's it going to cost me? The other thing that you need to understand is just because you have a well doesn't mean you have an endless supply of water, all right, even if the well is going to last, right? So you need to know how much production capacity the well has or how much production capacity would a well have in your area based on what other wells have, if you're going to have to put it in. But the other side of this to understand is when you put a well in, it's not like, you know, you see the old days where they're drilling oil and they hit a pocket and oil comes flying out of the ground. Water doesn't do that, all right? What happens with water is you got to pump it. You drill down to the water table and you need to pump it out. Well, how's that pump run? Well, most situations runs by electricity. And in most wells, that electricity comes from the power grid. So if you lose your electrical uh, current, eventually the prime is lost in the pump and you lose pressure and your water stops flowing. So you need to think about, well, can I put in some kind of a redundancy, maybe a backup generator like a show I keep talking about doing for short-term electrical losses? With a long-term grid failure, can I at least have the ability 
to run some kind of a hand pump and pump water out some alternative uh, spigot or hose bib. So at least I have some access to my well water. So those are some things to think about there. Uh, the next thing to think about is does the property have a creek on it or a pond or anything like that. Now a lot of times if you live in the right areas that water safe to drink and a lot of times it's not but no, you know, it doesn't matter how that works out. It is water. It can be used for irrigation. It can be used for water for wildlife or for livestock. Um, and it can be used for things like if your water is, is off for some reason and you have some water stored for drinking which is an easy thing to do and everybody should have some water stored for drinking but you need to flush the toilet well you can run down to the creek or a pond and get a bucket of water and, and dump it in the back side of the toilet and use it to flush the daggone toilet and uh, you know that's a big thing and you know, we have a pool here in, in the Dallas area and my, my wife's often worried about water I say well one thing we have to realize is that when it comes to water for bathing uh, if we had to if when it comes to water for watering the plants outside when it comes to uh, you know water for flushing toilets there's 22,000 gallons sitting in that pool and that's available to us and that would last us a long daggone time and it wouldn't be very convenient but it's there and uh, the odds that our water will be off for long enough to deplete that for those needs are low. So the only thing that we have to store water for is for our consumption and food preparation, and that reduces the amount of water that we need to do. Well, water on property does the same thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, what is the potential to build a pond or uh, to maybe dam a small creek or to put in a well? If the water's not there, does the potential exist, and what's the cost of it? That's something you really need to consider when you're looking at any property anywhere. At least uh, that's how I feel about it. Uh, then the next thing you really need to think about is, well, how do you want to use your land? I talk to people and go, well, if I had anything, you know, if I could have anything I wanted, I'd want 80 acres. And a lot of times I think, well, do you know how much land 80 acres or 80 acres is a big piece of land? That's a lot more land than people realize. And if you have 80 acres of fields, it's pretty big. If you have 80 acres that's mostly wooded and hilly terrain, it's really big. It's hard to get your head around the difference that it seems to make between, you know, flat field and, uh, and hilly, uh, treed and covered terrain. So what do you really want to do with the land? If you want to be a small scale farmer and you're saying, I'm looking for a little 40 acre plot, I want to put in a little hobby farm and stuff like that, that's great, man. You have your dream, follow it. My, my only caveat is understand that you don't run a 40 acre farm with hand tools. You're, you're into a situation where you need a good little small tractor, probably something with front end loader capabilities. You're going to be talking about putting a feed barn in and storage facilities. And you're talking about running a small business. And there's nothing wrong with running a small business. But understand that if you're talking about a 40 acre farm, you're talking about running a small business. If you're talking about building, let's say, taking 40 acres and turning most of it into some type of an orchard, it's still, by and large, a small business. It'll probably take, once you get it off the ground, a lot less oversight than a farm, uh, but you're still talking about a business a business operation, something that's going to require your time on a daily basis. If you want that, great, build it. But if you don't want that, don't fool yourself into believing that 40 acres is what you need when you don't want the, the lifestyle that goes with a 40-acre hobby farm. Right? We purchased five acres. Why? That's about as much as we want to deal with. 
and we were able to find that five acres in an area where everybody had at least that much land. The houses were separated from each other, and the area behind us is a steep cliff once you get to the backside of our property that nobody could build on anyway. You know, we're not in a place like California where they build on cliffs there. People look at a cliff there and go, I don't want that, and they go find another piece of land because it's cheap and affordable there. So that's, that's something you, you, you know, you want to look at is what are the areas around you and how much land do you really need. Your big questions for your land are, what, again, what do I want to do with it? Do I want, you know, I think everybody should have a garden. So you want a garden. Well, folks, a 50 by 50 foot area made up into multiple raised beds can grow an awful lot of food. If you're talking you and a wife and maybe two kids, that type of an area, you know, the 250 square feet, even if you're only using half of it, uh, because you're using raised beds with walkways in between, and a little greenhouse can produce a ton of food. I mean, uh, seriously, an abject ton of food. You throw in a couple other little things here and there, and, uh, you know, it'll produce a lot. So do you want more than that? Are you looking to do some kind of, you know, maybe not small-scale farming, but small-scale agriculture that's sufficient to maybe provide food to the local farmer's market? Are you looking for any income source off of the food, or is it just for you and for what you can trade and barter with neighbors? All right, so you have to make that determination in your mind. Or is the primary purpose of your land going to be used in permaculture techniques? So if you have 40 acres and you're going to be primarily a permaculturist where you're planting rows of blackberries, rows of raspberries, different trees, and you're kind of creating a wild ecosystem that provides food for yourself, then 40 acres makes a lot more sense than for someone that wants to make their primary means of food production from their property from agriculture. Unless that agriculturist, again, wants a small business, wants a farm, wants a plow, wants all this expensive equipment that goes with it, and wants to make that happen. And if you do, I'm not I'm not putting you down, man. Go do it. Just understand that's the kind of commitment it takes to harvest the agricultural capacity of even a 40-acre plot. It's, for lack of a better term, a full-time job. You know, kind of commensurate with the whole permaculture concept is, is there local wildlife that will utilize your property, and do you want that? In our case, we do. We put in feeders for the deer, for the squirrels, the raccoons, things like that. We, we kind of try to keep that stuff down on the back side of the property. Uh, there's a fence that runs along the back side of the property that doesn't really keep any of those critters out, but it does reduce their, uh, their, you know, their, their reasoning for coming forward onto the rest of the property. Because we want to be able to keep the deer out of the garden, so we have to do some fencing around the garden and things like that. So if you're really looking at agriculture, then having a huge native population of deer may not be a good thing because they will tear up a cornfield, folks. If you live in a place with a ton of deer, I mean, deer, deer can be your enemy as a farmer. And, and when corn plants are small, they'll eat the bag on corn plant right to the ground. So you have to think about, do I want wildlife? If you do, what kind of wildlife do you want? Can they become part of your permaculture? To me, the, the, there's, a, there's some deer in our area, in Arkansas, in that, that, that particular mountain that we live up on. There's not a huge deer herd up there. There's a nice little population. And there's enough with a seasonal limit of four deer a year that I could put two or three of them into the freezer, do my part to control that local herd, and I consider them a meat source. There's a lot of squirrels and there's a lot of rabbits up on that hill, and, and, and they are also a meat source. So the things that attract them 
also allow me to harvest them and make them part of our overall kind of homeostatic permaculture uh, uh, ecosystem up there. So there's certain things I want to plant, for instance, different types of nut and fruit trees. The squirrels and the deer will take some. They can have some. I'll plant enough that they can have some and we can have some, and that some of them will become part of the, the circle of life. And if you're, uh, and I get emails from people occasionally that are vegetarian and they don't eat meat, they don't want to kill animals. Hey, look, again, I am not putting anybody's lifestyle choice down. Just understand that people like me look at a squirrel and we say he's cute, he's got a fluffy tail, but when he cleans every peach off my tree, he's better suited for the stew pot. And then by, you know, everybody living their own way and accepting each other, we create the, the, the ecosystem that, that's best for everybody. Or you don't want to eat squirrels, that's alright, I'll do my, I'll do my duty and I'll eat them. You know, just like, yeah, I understand the person that keeps chickens and kills off uh, half the flock a year for meat for the house. I get it. I understand. Come to your house, I'll eat your chicken. I, it's not me. I don't kill animals that have no, no means of defense. All right, I can, I'm a hunter, I'm not a killer. That's just who I am. I've accepted it. I've seen that as my limitation. If I'm starving to death, I'll cut a chicken's head off, but I really don't want to make it part of my lifestyle. So the little flock of hens that we'll have up in Arkansas will be for egg production. And we won't have any roosters and we won't have little chickens running around that we don't know what to do with. All right, so that's, that's just who I am. So you have to be comfortable with who you are and figure out how to make this lifestyle fit. And that's really the key to making it perfect. Is to make it fit you. I can't tell you. I mean, I just talked to this financial advisor recently. I think I finally found a financial advisor that's worth a damn. And one of the things he said is all these people that write these books and talk about financial advice and say, you should never do this. You should always do this. They're full of shit. Right? And they should all be, you know, basically flogged because they don't know you. Well, the same thing with buying a property. I can't tell you, oh, you don't want 40 acres and a tractor and a plow and a full-time job and a small-scale farm. Farming's hard. You don't make a lot of money and you have to work every day. Maybe you like that. Maybe that is what you want. Maybe you have a way to make it more profitable than most small farms. Maybe you want to specialize in something that nobody else is specializing in. I saw a YouTube video about a little farmer that specialized in this red corn. It's where I learned about red corn and started trying to grow some of my own. And, you know, the guy has orders from specialty boutique restaurants all over the nation he can't fill. All right, so what's the difference between his farm and everybody else's farm? He's not growing feed corn. He's growing something specific for a specific market. So if that's what you want, then go get it. All right. On that note, though, I think one of the things that you really need to look at, specifically if you're going to be the small-scale homesteader, you're going to either work or have some kind of a part-time business or go into a semi-retirement or even a full retirement state, and you are going to, uh, but you're not going to have 40 acres in a, in a business run off your property, right? Then you need to really look at very, very hard the total cost of ownership. One of the biggest reasons people want to move from a big city to a small town it's because it's a lower cost of living. Now, the thing is, when you go to the grocery store, it's not that big of a lower cost of living. The biggest reduction in cost of living when you move out remotely is the property itself. In two forms, the cost of the property per square foot of home and per acre of property, right? And then the other one is taxation. So, it's you know, taxation is a big one that people fail to look at appropriately before they make a decision of where to buy. You can move out in what looks like the sticks, 
buy a property for $100,000 and be very shocked to find out that you have $2,000 a year in county and medical and property taxes and things like that because you live in a high tax rate area and your area is considered improved or incorporated or whatever. You might find a property only a few miles away from there where the property, the same property, the same house, the same everything, might have taxes of three to $400 a year because that area is considered unincorporated or unimproved. So then you, when you find that, then you also have to say, well, is improvement coming to my property whether I want it or not? What are the odds that the city will expand its services out to my area? So if you find a place that's thinly populated, even if they go through all the grief that's there, the cities are businesses, folks. A city is run like a business. If I'm going to move out and incorporate this area, annex this area, provide additional services to this area, what have you, what can I do to my tax base? If there's only 200 people out there, and it's going to cost me more to deliver them services than I'll ever be able to justify under my taxation system that I have in place, I'm not going to do it. I'll even give them what I have to give them remotely to avoid the full cost of ownership versus the low cost of return on the taxation. So if you're right on the edge of that, you need to look at hard. What is the population around you, and what is the forecast of population growth? Will they one day go, hey, guess what? You're now part of XYZ Town. You're, this is wonderful. We're going to start, instead of this you know, remote, private uh, uh, sanitation department that you have taking your garbage away, our city garbage collectors will come by. You won't have to pay for that individually anymore. We're bringing water. Oh, you don't need water. It's going to be there in case you do. Right? We're bringing a sewer line in. We're doing all this wonderful stuff. Yeah, great. Here's your new bill. $1,800. It's not $400 anymore. It's $1,800 now. Right? So you have to look at that as part of your cost of ownership and what is its potential to go up in the future. Right? So that, that, that's one of the biggest overlooked expenses. Another expense to look at is insurance. You might find a beautiful piece of bottom land. Gorgeous bottom land, bottom of the mountain, little swamp behind it. Perfect place for you. It's what you've always wanted. Maybe you're a Louisiana boy. Well, now you got to worry about floods. It's flood insurance. What's it going to cost for flood insurance? Is it going to be required by a mortgage holder if you're going to mortgage the property? So you've got to think about that. So insurance and taxes, include them in your cost of ownership. And don't wait until you think you found the property you want to start thinking about that. As you start to identify, you draw that five-hour circle around where you live. You pick an area. You start to see the cost of property there. You start to see the way people live there. You decide this is an area we could make a second home or a permanent home out of. This is my area. Start looking at what's the cost of insuring property in that area. What's the cost of taxation in that that area. What areas are in an unincorporated area that are going to have lower taxation and still give me reason reasonable geographic access to small town cities, etc., and be very unlikely to be abducted by a taxation system where it's going to, my cost is going to go up in the future, uh, exponentially maybe overnight. Make that determination before you really go in there and start you know, wasting a real estate agent's time with viewing properties or wasting your own time going down to the tax office and looking for property that's maybe in default. That's a great way to find property in these areas. Go to the tax office and say, I want to see all the properties that you have that are in default right now that are behind on their taxes that you're considering eventually auctioning. And a lot of times you'll find out somebody lived there, they died. Families 
was not sure what to do with it, and they just let it fall through the cracks. And you track that person down and say, I'm interested in this place. I'll give you an offer of X, Y, Z, and you can often buy it before it ever goes on the market. Right? That'll be part of that research, though. So make sure before you take the time to do something like that, you know that, okay, it's going to cost me more to insure here, but I, I don't care. Or it's going to cost me more to insure here, so I'm going to look for property on this side of town where it's not part of the floodplain. Right? Or, you know, if I buy a manufactured home in this area, it's really a tornado risk area. I'm not comfortable with manufactured homes, so I'm going to look here, but if it's a manufactured home, it's not an option. Or in this area... The manufactured home's fine. It's safe. Right. I don't have anything to worry about. It has its own limitations, but it's so these are the questions to have answered before you start going to Realtor.com in United Country and viewing properties. Where? How much? What type of structure? Right? Where I'm, you know, so you use these things all together to pin down an area and then kind of start doing some real detective sleuthing to figure out is this really what I want long term? And my other thought is, you know, I've differed with some financial advisors on the concept of paying off a home. Some of them say you don't want to pay your home off. You know, keep the money, you know, as long as, let's say, if your mortgage is 5% and you're earning on your money an average of 8% in your investments, well, you're better off with your money invested than in your home. There's some truth to that. My view, though, is if... If my property's paid for, I don't need to rely on a return of investment as much. And with those numbers, 5% interest on my mortgage, 8% interest on my investment, my effective yield is 3%. Well, if I have the property paid for, and then because I'm not paying on the property, can take all of that extra income and continue to invest it at 8%, then my effective yield on my investment is 8%. Further, if everything goes to pot, I lose my income or what have you, at least I keep my house because it's paid for. And it's one thing I don't have to worry about. It's one thing I don't have to think about. And a good exercise in getting your head around how much money you'll really need in a remote location with a reduced cost of living and maybe a paid-for house and reduced insurance and reduced uh, everything else is get a handle on your primary expenses with spending and which ones you can reduce with this and which ones are going to be constant no matter where you go. And if you sit down with Excel or just a list or a notebook and you just start making a list of your biggest expenses, most people are going to find that their big expenses are transportation, so in other words, car payments and gas, food, energy, which, you know, heating, electricity, cooling, things like that, housing, which is, to me, your taxation on your house, your insurance on your house, and your house payment. And your last one is going to be food. That if you took all of those expenses out of your budget, you'd be amazed how much more money you would have. But those are the ones, food, energy, transportation, housing. All right. So which one of those can be reduced through this formula of moving to a remote location? Well, you can reduce the housing cost, period. You can do that. You can have an equivalent or better for less. If you pay it off, you really drive the housing cost down. The energy costs... 
if you start putting alternative energy systems in and you buy an efficient area, you move to an area that has a good climate, you can push down, but there's still a constant there. Unless you can, you know, make the investment to live totally off-grid, which is, you know, for now hard to justify. It may get a lot easier with some of the energy incentives that we've talked about that are coming out. In the next the next uh, six, eight years, you're going to see the cost of solar arrays in particular and, and wind generation uh, go way down. So it's something you might be able to, but don't bet the farm on it. Food. Food you can have some impact on through your agricultural activities, but you could probably do that in suburban America to a large degree. You could just do it more somewhere else, and you can't bet on it in your first couple of years. Transportation? Transportation is totally up to you. Now, maybe you're going to say, well, when I live out there, I'm not going to commute 40 miles a day or 50 miles a day or, like me, 100 miles a day. Right, so that's an immediate reduction in cost and, and what kind of vehicle you need and, and things like that. But con- transportation, to a large degree, has a constant. You're going to have to have a car, so either you buy a used car or a paid-for car or you lease a car or you you know have a car payment however you want to do that. And I am a big believer in eliminating debt. So I would want to pay for any vehicle that you're going to use as quickly as possible, but you still spent the money. Right? So that's also a constant. So really get a handle on your total cost of ownership and understand how much you can actually reduce. And that will help you figure out where you need to go, what you need to look for, and how you need to be able to support yourself after you get there. That it won't just be some, you know, utopia that you'll show up there and uh, if you have $10,000 in the bank, you'll be able to live on that for $1,000 a year for 10 years. It's not going to work out that way, no matter how much of a reduction that you have. So get real numbers to start to figure out how can I generate this income. Can I do it through investment, safe investment? Can I do it through? part-time employment? Can I do it through, do I just want to work full-time when I move there? I just want to change my life and continue my financial plan the way that it is with less of my income being siphoned off. Can I work remotely? Some people, if they could talk their employer to employing them remotely, could do a better job, be more productive, make the same money, and then live anywhere they want it. So if that's an option, it's something you need to look at. So these are all things that you need to consider as you start looking, where is my perfect place? In other words, where's my dream home? Because dream home in America, to me, has been bastardized to believe that a dream home is a giant square brick house with 4,000 square feet inside it with all kinds of fancy furniture. And if that's what you want, go do it. You're probably not thinking that way. If you are, you probably don't listen to my show. To me, a dream home is a homestead that provides more for me than I provide for it. It's out in the country and allows me to live my life my way. It's To me, it's got to be close to some government land so that I have a big backyard beyond what I pay for. And in my particular instance, I'm about, oh, 15 minutes away from the border of the Washita National Forest, which gives me 1.8 million acres just in that piece of the Washita Forest. I could almost walk to the, in fact, I could, if I wanted to, walk from where I live to the Oklahoma border and into Oklahoma and still be on land that's available for anybody. So that's a big issue for me. So you have to think about all these things and how they apply to you and what you want, what your lifestyle is. This is not just running away to the hills, building up a bunker, stocking some ammunition under your uh, bed, and living like some kind of freaked out hermit. It's about creating a lifestyle that you're actually interested in living, that you want to live, so that you can live really well if times get tough, or even if they don't, right? 
So the last criteria I have for you to think about is, what are the things that I really want to be happy on a property that maybe other people wouldn't give a damn about? I'll give you an example with one of mine. I wanted a place where on my own property I could discharge a firearm. I wanted to be able to shoot. And you might think, well, Jack, to be able to shoot, you need to go out and get at least that 40-acre spread or something. No. Um, Our property has behind it a giant mountain. No one will ever build on that mountain. The people that live there have already come to the conclusion among themselves that shooting in that area is absolutely, totally acceptable. And if you go up there on any given day, you might hear somebody shooting. No one calls the police and goes, I I heard shots fired. And then the police come up there and go, "Uh, sir, did you hear anybody shooting? Yeah, it was me. Well, sir, you can't do that. You know, there's, there's no law against the discharge of firearms where I am. And, you know, even people do a little bit of hunting on their own property up there. That was important to me. So what I eventually want to do is put in at least a little 50-yard open uh, range for myself with a good backstop and a little bench. And I want to be able to tinker with my reloading equipment and work up loads and go out once a day and fire 10, 15, 20 rounds. Some days 100 rounds. Whatever I want to do. I like to shoot. It's important to me. Sure, there's plenty of public ranges up there. I mean, there's plenty of places up there you can go. It doesn't cost you any money at all. Uh, there's ranges right on some of the state game lands and some of the, uh, the the forests up there where the public just can go and just shoot. But then when I go there, I have to deal with other people. I have to wait for them. And I like the, I like that experience. Don't get me wrong, because you meet other people. Uh, you get to sh- talk about guns with people that like guns, and that's always fun. So I like that social interaction, but I don't like it every day. And if I had my way, I'd shoot three or four times a week. I can't do that in Arlington. I can do that up there. So that was something that was important to me. And maybe that's important to you, or maybe something totally different is important to you. Maybe to have a real place that you would love to be, you've got to have a pond in your backyard that you can fish in off your own back deck, right? I'd love that. I don't have to have it. So when it came down to which one was a bigger priority, for me it was being able to shoot. So we found a property that, you know, maybe we could get a pond on there at some point. I'm not real optimistic about it just because of the way the ground is and everything. But I know I can have my little rifle range and no one's going to get upset. No one's going to call the police. Sheriff ain't going to show up and go, Mr. Spirito, we understand you've been discharging firearms around here, and that ain't acceptable. In fact, the sheriff might come up there and go, hey, man, could could I, uh, you know, try out my new carbine? And I'd be like, hell, hell yeah, man, come on, right? That's the kind of place I wanted to live. Now, maybe to you, living in a place where your neighbors fire firearms, right, is, uh, is, is scary. You would be worried about that. You don't trust your neighbor with firearms. Now, I do, right? Because I'm talking about people that have grown up shooting and they shoot responsibly and they're not out there drunk, firing guns off in the air or anything stupid like that. Uh, these are these are country people that grew up with a gun. And no one's ever shot anybody out there. And the only one in danger of being shot is somebody breaking in somebody's house. I'm comfortable. If you're not, do not move to an area like that and expect the people that live there to accommodate you. It's one of the most ridiculous things in the world to have a person move into a community and then go, oh, I heard gunshots and I don't like it. Well, it's been that way forever. All right, That's how this area is. So if you're looking for a place where that doesn't happen, go somewhere where it doesn't happen. If you're looking someplace where you're allowed to do it, go somewhere where people are already accepting of it. 
And that goes for any activity. If you go out to a place where, let's say you want a place where you can have livestock, don't move to a place where that would really be kind of abnormal. All right, where people are going to start complaining about your chickens and your rabbits and your goats. All right, and then if the other side, if if you don't want the smell of goats and cattle around, don't move to a place where people have them and then complain about it. Try to create a zoning variance to change it. So find the type of community that's important to you as an individual and go there. If it means that you need to live in that place, and I said I could live pretty happy in the beginning out in the remote, you know, bitter root wilderness of Montana, then that's where you need to go if that's what you need to be happy. If you need to have a nice little town that has churches and shops and and services in it like my wife does, then that place is somewhere on the outskirts of a place like Hot Springs, Arkansas. In other words, the perfect homestead and retreat does exist, but it's different in the heart of every man, woman, and child. And your goal is to find the place that you can shape into that image for yourself And I can promise you this, it's a big world, and it's out there. So go out and find it, figure out how to make it yours, figure out how to do it in a way that doesn't make you live the rest of your life in debt for it, and how to turn it it into a homestead so that it can provide for you instead of you providing for it. And if you do that, you'll go a long way towards reclaiming your life. And you know how I feel about that. If you want to reclaim your nation, and folks, I am fearful for my nation right now. We've taken a break from politics and a break from the economy today. But the reality is the type of thing that I'm talking about doing here is reclaiming your life. And when you reclaim your life, you take the first step toward reclaiming your nation. And if about 20 million of us reclaim our life this way, we'll take our nation back. We won't have to do anything else. It will be a chain reaction that will make a difference. So I hope I've made you think today, even when I didn't go into politics or the economy at all, about how those things affect you and how you can sort of opt out of the system. But while you're opting out of the system, change the system at the same time. Again, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.